0: Well, good to see all of you here in the room as well as you guys online. Um, We're today uh, in Genesis chapter 30, we're studying, uh, doing character studies of the patriarchs and we're sort of in the middle of our character study of Jacob. Uh, Just a little bit of a quick reminder, because I'm not going to go through all of this. What chapter uh, 29 and into 30 did was summarize for us the birth of Jacob's sons to his what ultimately are his four wives, Rachel and um, Leah and each one of their servants, and as he takes them in, in effect they become his wife. So anyway, we talked a little bit about that, but this is very important, and again, if you're really interested in, in this uh, dynamic in page22 of the note packet, I gave you a chart of the twelve sons of Jacob because at this point uh, Benjamin hasn't been born yet anyway. and the importance of each one of the tribes, but particularly uh, Leah's uh, son Judah is the one that will give birth to, uh, to ultimate to Jesus, uh, that line. So anyway, that's very important, it's very important that the Bible establish these twelve lines of the tribes of Judah, of the tribes of Israel, I mean. Now what we do with verse 25 uh, of chapter 30 is, this, this can get a little bit complicated, so do the best you can to hang in here with me as we go through this text. But let me give you the big picture of what is going on here. Jacob makes the decision. He wants to go back to the promised land. And Uncle Laban, remember who he is, (laughs) Uncle Laban is not interested in that happening. And so what is going to happen, there's going to be a push and pull between Jacob and Laban. And Laban is going to use his old conniving ways to try to trick Jacob. But here, God is going to, in effect, be his champion, Is Jacob champion, and Jacob is going to leave Padamaram and head for the promised land, a very wealthy man, and he will out-trick Laban. But in, in a sense, God is championing this. God isn't being deceptive. Laban is trying to be very deceptive and very manipulative with Jacob, and God overrides that. And it's really strange because there are some superstitious things that are practiced here. And we want to go through it the best we can and just see that God made a promise to Jacob. I'm going to take you back several chapters. When he was leaving Beersheba, running from Esau, remember he stopped overnight at Bethel, which he, he calls it Bethel eventually, but it's Canaanite city of love. He sees the vision of God, and God promises him as he renews the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, I will take care of you, and I will bring you back to the land. Now It's really important to remember that, because what is going to happen in this chapter and into chapter 31 is we're going to see God take care of Jacob. And he's going to get out of Patamaram and head to the promised land. And I doubt we'll get to it, but then chapter 32 is where Jacob as he's about ready to cross into the promised land has a wrestling match with God which is an incredibly important chapter it's one of the most important chapters in Genesis but if we get to that today it will get started next week is probably where we'll finish it that's kind of an overview Uh, I hope enough of a big picture for you to understand what is about to happen here verse 25 let me pick up there As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, now that was the last thing we talked about. This is the 11th son. One more son to come would be Benjamin, but that's a little bit further on. The year is 1916 BC. Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. In other words, back to the promised land. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For now, for you know the service that I have given But Laban said, now notice these words, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. You could translate that, since I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, The the Hebrew term divination can mean a lot of things because divination is a broad word used in the scriptures for occult activity. But we do know this, whatever specifically he was doing, that is not something God approves of. God, I mean, have you ever heard of the word divination? It's not a normal word we use, but usually you're familiar with it. But it's occult practices to discern the will of the gods. So whatever happened here, whatever is is going on here specifically and how Laban says by divination, but he's stating a fact, the Lord blessed Laban because of Jacob. That is a fact. However, he discerned that, which God does not necessarily prove that, but what he says is a fact that Laban has experienced very significant prosperity because of Jacob. Now, what Laban wants to do, again, as I mentioned, follow me closely as we go through this. You can get lost on all the activity that's going on. Laban wants Jacob and his family to stay there. He's envisioning never seeing his grandkids again. I'm making that up, but I'm sure that's part of it. But I think primarily, it isn't filial piety here. He is believing that if Jacob goes, his prosperity will come to an end. So I'm not trying to cut Laban a break, but listen, he's not a really nice guy. He's even more deceptive and conniving than Jacob. So he has one thing in mind. I know I've been blessed because you don't leave. This is what he says. He makes a proposition. I will pay you to stay here. What's it gonna cost me for you to stay here so the ESV which the translation I read from translates it this way name your wages and I will give it because you see Jacob has fulfilled all of his obligations to Laban he has served Laban for 14 years seven years for Leah seven years for Rachel that's over and so Laban he can add up too he knows it's over so now he's making a proposition to Jacob, what's it gonna cost me for you to stay here? So Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when, I shall, pro- now when shall I provide for my household also, I've served you. I fulfilled the obligation. You have been blessed. Now, it's time for me to cut the tithe and go off on my own. So he's saying the same thing a little bit of a different way. Verse 31. He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you should not give me anything. If you will do today, removing from it every speckled, if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your, lot, your flock and keep it. Now, that's the end of verse 31. So, Jacob is proposing something here. I will stay if you do this. And the this is in verse 32. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it the flock, every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. They shall be my wages. Do you understand Jacob's proposition? I'm going to walk through all of your flocks, sheep and goats and so on, and I'm going to pick out the itemizes: on it, speckled ones, spotted ones on the sheep, black lambs, which typically aren't many black lambs, but black lambs, and speckled and spotted goats. That's my wages. That's my proposition, verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But Laban agrees to the proposed deal. Now, you're with me? You're fine so far? All right, now, verse 35 is very, very important. Laban has agreed to this. But now, Laban is going to take all of this into his own hands and try to outsmart Jacob. Remembering what I said when I began this class today, you've got to remember what God promised. Jacob at Bethel, I will be with you. He repeats the Abrahamic covenant and all that. He said, I will be with you. I will take care of you, and I will bring you back to the promised land. That's what's going on here, because God is now going to intervene in this process and be the champion for Jacob. Look at verse 35. Moses is very clear as he writes this, but is how the verse begins in Hebrew. It's a very strong adversative. The contrast, but that day Laban removed all the male goats that were striped and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, as Jacob passed through the rest of Laban's flocks. Laban is being clever, deceitful, duplicitous, trying to take Jacob's proposal and turn it on his head so that it benefits him, okay? Now, verse 37, Jacob, this, is, this gets really bizarre because it, it, it folds into the narrative some superstitious practices of the ancient Eastern world that we are not at all familiar with at all. But they were practices, and again, they're superstitious. They're not authorized by the Bible, not approved by the Bible. They're superstitious to increase fertility of animals. Okay? And Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, where they're drinking water and so on where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, I don't know if that's an absolute axiom of all animals, but the observation was when they come to feed and drink, that's when they have sex together. I'm being very blunt, you're all men, you can handle that. So he's just making an observation, it's Jacob. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the stripe and all the black in the flock of Abraham. He put on his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger the flock was breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock who would not lay with them, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large female male servants and camels and donkeys. So a questionable superstitious practice that was used to heighten fertility to what we today would call selective breeding is what Jacob's doing. Now add that to the next layer and God is superintending all this to overcome the duplicitous, deceptive schemes of Laban so then, in effect, the text concluded at the end of verse uh, chapter uh, 30, uh, two, uh, 30 that God blesses him, Jacob. So I just read through all this. I briefly tried to comment. Are you with me? Do you understand what's happening? It's bizarre. I mean, it's no rancher out in the sand hills of Nebraska does this or any of, you know, the the herds of animals down in Kansas or up in the... I mean, but this is a weird, superstitious, uh, questionable thing that was done. But he does it, and God, superintending all this, says, I'm gonna take care of Jacob. Because Laban's schemes are to undermine everything Jacob uh, has said in terms of the deal. So, now, the other thing that you, you need to comment on is, number one, is remember, Laban has taken all these that he had hand taken them three days journey. He's quite a distance away from here. And the second thing you have to remember, this doesn't happen overnight. This is over a fairly extended period of time. We're not quite sure you know, how long, but you're talking about these animals breeding together and then eventually having, um, what do you call them? Offering. So, I mean, this is over a period of time, but the end result is, God superintended all this in Jacob's favor. And Jacob now, as he follows the agreed-upon methodology, picking out all these animals at tongue, he has an enormous amount of wealth. I have a question, kind of a dumb question, about the economy at this time. What does he do with the fuck? Does he sell it to people in the city, or do you just keep enlarging it? Do you, I don't know if you've he, ever looked into it. Well, yes, I mean, this... This entire time of history is a very agricultural society. So, everything is essentially um, subsistence living, having enough food, animals as well as as the grain and so on. So, the grain also that you grow and so on. But a lot of times, again, I'm going to be as simplistic as I can. A lot of times, a herder of animals because most of it was a barter system, there was some exchange of money, it depends on where you are that would be acceptable in these various areas, but it's a barter system where you are exchanging X number of animals for X amount of food for your animals. You see what I'm saying? And the animals would be used for food, but also, and this isn't it depends on where you are, but all of these societies, all of which were basically pagan, They are offering sacrifices to their gods. So these animals are also used for the sacrifices as well. The Canaanites sacrificed. The Arameans, which is where this is sacrificed. And of course, the Jewish people, who in this case just Abraham and his descendants, sacrificed. So is that an answer to your question? Jim, do they have crops uh, in this area at all? Yes, here, yes. This is the upper part of the Mesopotamian Valley. So there is adequate sure. adequate furrow for ground there to, to grow. Some on. of those animals were they used uh, to to plow the fields
1: to and plant the seed too, as
0: far as you know. Uh, probably probably not these goats and and, and, and lambs don't make good workforce and oxen were Camels were used not so much in pulling cloth, but camels were used for hauling lots of, of goods, either raw goods or, or the finished goods that would be sold in markets. Uh, there is virtually no there's virtually no industry of the way you and I think of industry, other than textile. The textile industry is the earliest industry of, of humanity and its, in its uh, development economically. Uh, and the making of cloth, that's what textiles are. And that was a very common thing. A little bit later, we're almost there, but a little bit later is going to be the making of iron tools and iron weapons. And the Philistines will develop the monopoly of the iron trade in this part of the world at this time. That's a little bit further down the, the road. This is largely subsistence. These are largely subsistence agricultural societies. And they're still living in the tent. You're correct. Yes. Yes. Now, Where there are permanent settlements, what would become known as cities, where there are permanent settlements, it's, it's still, it, you know, they're walled, but it's still, it's agricultural. And those, those villages that then become walled villages, which then become walled cities, will become very, very important in the development of the Middle East. But we are 4,200 B. we're 4,200 years ago, basically with Abraham, are now about 4,000 years ago with Jacob, you know? So it's, we're still, there's not yet, but it's soon gonna change with the rapid development of things that are happening with the growing Mesopotamian empires. But you go to Egypt, it's very different. Egypt has a very highly sophisticated civilization. And they're not only subsistence agriculture, they are in commercial agriculture and they're selling, they're selling wheat, because the Nile is such a fertile valley. I'm getting way beyond your question, but that's part of it. Dr. Eckman? Yeah. So back in verse 32, when, when Jacob was describing the speckled and spotted sheep and the black lambs, those, are those substandard, uh, considered substandard? And then he's using that as, a, as his with with Laban, they would probably be regarded as substandard, whether they actually are as, a, as an animal. Yes, that, that would be accurate. All right, so now we're at the point where <laughs> Laban has been out-connived. I don't know if that's even a word, but he's been out-connived. You know, he's been out-maneuvered. Uh, it hasn't worked. So now what we have is, what is Jacob going? how is Jacob going to get away from Laban? Because it's very clear Laban doesn't want to let him go. And he's not everything. So now chapter 31 is how does this happen? Because there is increasing animosity between Jacob and his family. Remember, he's got 11 boys and a daughter, plus his four wives, plus all of his servants, plus all of his flocks, etc. And Laban and his family and all of his flocks and so on. So there's increasing animosity here. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Now, those first two verses are not exactly true because Laban has been outfoxed with God's help. But they're looking and they're saying, this is a fact. Jacob's herds are greater than our dad's, and he stole all that from dad. So that's not exactly conducive to good family relationships. And Jacob is noticing, Laban does not look with favor upon me anymore. That is obvious. And the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So now Jacob is not only having this propensity and desire to go back home the lord has just commanded him to go home with a promise i will be with you now that is reiterating what god had said to him in bethel where god revealed the covenant and promised that he would be with him take care of him protect him and bring him back to the land so Here's Jacob. He he wants to go back home. He's he's clearly seen God take care and bless him, and now he has a command from God to go. So Jacob sent, and I love, Moses is really, it's really important here. Moses is giving us a lot of details here. Very specific details. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, why do you think Jacob didn't talk to his two wives wives back in the camp? All well, the servants. Well, the servants are there. I mean, Laban you know, could have other, you know, it's, he's, he's really concerned about Laban hearing what he's about to say. So he summons Rachel and say, hey, I'm out in the field. Nobody's around. Come here, I'm going to talk to you. And I'm making that up, but it's kind of like that. And this is what he says. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my Father has been with me. That's an extraordinary statement of faith. He acknowledges, he recognizes, and he celebrates God's protection and God's blessing of him, just as God had promised. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. How many years has he served Laban? 14 years. He has been faithful, he, Jacob, has been faithful to the agreements. Yet your father, you know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me, changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Second statement in this paragraph of Jacob recognizing and affirming God's protection and God's blessing over him. If he said, spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore uh, flock spotted. If he said, the striping be all your wages, then all the flock were spotted. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He is recognizing third time that God has superintended this mess. That Jacob could only recognize God did this. It's impossible for this to just occur. God's taken care of me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats had mated with the flock for striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of the goat, God, said to me in the dream, Jacob, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats, the mate, with the flock, are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has doing, is doing to you. I am, this is really important. So Jacob is telling us something that we didn't read in the previous section. God is revealing all of this in the dream to an angel. As all the breeding occurs and so on. And then look at this important statement in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel. Bethel is house of God. Referring back to that Canaanite city laws where Jacob met God and he changed the name of it. I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out of this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So Jacob is finished now telling what he wanted to explain to Rachel and Leah. He interjects some things that we didn't know. And an angel had appeared and spoke for God, reminding Jacob, in effect, God's superintending all this and taking care of you. And he reviewed, he, the angel, speaking for God, reviews this covenantal relationship. Then Rachel and Leah answered, them in verse 14, and said, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in your, our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. He has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So, the comment of Rachel and Leah further solidifies the character trait of Laban. He was a real rascal. He even took the legitimate inheritance that was due to Rachel and Leah, stole it. So, what did Rachel and Leah say? When God blessed you the way he blessed you, he in effect is restoring our inheritance to us. We will be blessed. Through what God has done. So what God is telling you to do, do it. Jacob will with you. Let's go. So there is no loyalty or devotion of these two girls to Uncle Laban. And they are recognizing and quite, quite clearly declaring, Laban stole from them. So they're, they're okay with what Jacob is going to do. Yeah.
1: Jacob's wives <laughs> now become believers, um,
0: along the line, Jacob, maybe not to that level, but are they becoming believers? Um, no, I, I'm not sure I can answer that with authority, because we're going to see Rachel do something with one of the idols of her uncle that now, is questionable. what we going. do too, you know, uh, even as Christians, we can get off on yeah I, I just i just don't know at this point at this point i just don't know if we can make a definitive comment on their spiritual condition i, I just don't know we're certainly seeing oh my goodness oh yeah 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 oh but you're asking me personal faith that i just yeah. don't know they're seeing the clear evidence of what jacob's been saying and they're seeing, seeing the clear evidence that god is favoring jacob that's called grace but whether they're—I I just don't know. I can't comment on their personal faith at this point. I, I just don't know. Okay, so in in a sense, and I, I think we can reach this conclusion. For Rachel and Leah, they are seeing divine justice here in what God has done for Jacob. Do you understand when I when I put it that way? That sentence—they're seeing divine justice. God's system of justice is called talionic justice. That's all through the Bible. And this is talionic justice. God, What God is doing is He's taking what rightfully belonged to Leah and Rachel, which was stolen by Leah, and making sure that they get it. I mean, it, I mean in effect, that's what and they're, they're seeing. There is no explanation for this other than, you know, Jacob, what your God said is going to happen is if your God says go, we're going. But they're seeing. And so this is, I would look at this as part of their progressive understanding of who Jacob's God is. And that progressive understanding, the evidence that sort of is overwhelming. But the condition and state of their personal faith at this point, I, I just don't know. They, I think it, it will come. I just don't know at this point. So Jacob now, and it starts in verse 15, 17, Jacob is going to do something. That humanly speaking takes great courage you 're going to leave, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, as again we talk about camels were very important at this period, and he drove all his livestock, all his property he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Padamaram to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and here. Here's something Rachel does. And Rachel stole her father's household goods. ESV has chosen to translate the Hebrew word teraphim, t-e-a-r P-H-I-M. They've chosen to translate the Hebrew word teraphim as household goods. I'm gonna be very blunt here. They should have translated it household idol. So it's some kind of um, tactile, visible, idolatrous image. <laughs> so I have the new American standard image says I.: Okay, good. I mean, it's when you read household goods, that's a very neutral term. Terrahimme is not a neutral term. So it. She's doing something that she should not have done. This was part of the, I don't know how to say this, this was part of the polytheism of the ancient world. And it was something that even as you get to the children of Israel and and their um, wilderness wanderings, and even in their land, you see examples of this where people have idols in their homes. Even supposedly ones that are dedicated to the Lord. And I'm supposed to do that. Very clear commandment, number one and two and 10 Commandments. So that's clear. So what she's doing, it, it's a little mysterious. The motives of Rachel here are not clear. And we'll see some of that as we get through this narrative. But what she has done she should not have done. Not only is she stealing, it's what she took. Laban had gone, I read it, verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now, you know, you can look in the map, but, you know, Padamaram is about 510 miles from Beersheba. And so as he's starting to come south, he's going to cross the Euphrates River which, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates River, the two major river valleys, rivers of the valley called the Mesopotamia. So that's important. He's crossing the Euphrates. Now the next block of land is going to be Gilead, which is the east side of the Jordan River. So the text is just telling us he's headed direct south. All right, now, when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, so I mean, this is really remarkable. How you know, the text isn't totally clear, that how Jacob could move his family lots of kids and four wives and all this across all these flocks, and Laban not realize he left till three days later. So, however, this works out. Three days later, Laban finds out they've left. And continuing, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead." Now that means, Gilead, that means they're now south to just the edge, the edge of the eastern part of the Jordan River, and see a of Galilee and all that. But God came, this is verse 24, "'God came to Laban the Aramean in the dream by night "'and said to him, be careful, "'not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad.'" That's interesting. what word would you put after that? He warned Laban, be careful. And Laban overtook Jacob. For Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? You're not me to kiss my sons and daughters. I didn't get to say goodbye to my grandkids. How you would say it, 2022. Now you've done foolishly. It is my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either go to bed. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly to be in your father's house. But why did you steal my goods? Now let's just think through this. What the text is clearly telling us is, if God hadn't intervened in Laban's life in that dream, he would have done physical harm to Jacob. But he yeah. believed that, he understood that, and again, I have no idea of the personal spiritual condition of Laban's heart, but he believed that. Yeah. So what he focuses on is one question. Why did you steal my gods? So that's why the ESV should translate teraphim as household god. Because That's what he says. Why did you steal my gods? I'm a polytheist. I worship many gods and I have images of these gods in my home. Why did you take them? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you might take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom? You find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Jacob doesn't exactly know what he's talking about. But he says, you can search through all my stuff. And if you find it, take it. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent. And into the tent of the two fellow servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. I told you when we began class today this is going to be a lot of complicated stuff. So let's think about what's happening here. First of all, these household gods, and it's plural, it's more than one, these household gods must not have been as tall. must have been small, little gods, small, little idols, small, little images. Without a search warrant, Laban has searched everything. Every square inch of the tent. And now he's in Rachel's tent, but where's Rachel? Well, she's sitting on her camel. And what did verse 35 tell us? The way of women. What does that mean? That's a euphemism. That's a Hebrew euphemism. for she's menstruating. She's in that 30-day cycle where the, you know, we know what happens. But anyway, she's menstruating. So she's seated on the camel. Now listen, think about this a minute. And these gods are under her. And by sitting on them in her menstruating cycle, she's made them unclean. By sitting on them in her menstrual cycle, she's defiled them. By sitting on them during her menstrual cycle, she is showing contempt for them. By sitting on them during her, in her menstrual cycle, it's a polemic against this stuff. And so whether she's doing that out of contempt for Laban, her uncle, or whether she really has contempt for this stuff, it is very important that she's sitting on them during her menstrual cycle. Do you, do you understand what I just was talking about? This is a very, very important nonverbal statement, but it's a very, very important, nonverbal sign of contempt for this stuff. Why did she do? Well, see, like I said a moment ago, Ed, why she did that, her motive for doing this is just, it's not clear. She's not getting anything financially out of this. Does it reflect her mystical, polytheistic belief? I need these gods to protect me as I go on this long journey. There's not evidence of that, but maybe, or maybe because of what happened, she really does want to demonstrate, visibly, the contempt for the idolatry of labor. If that's true, then that says something about her personal faith. But the text is just silent. We have to try to figure out what really is, is, is going on. So well, this up, is why she did what she did is not clear. But it, again, what she's doing is, in a very real sense, she's lying to Laban because she knows where the idols are. But she's saying, well, I'm going through my menstrual cycle. i I can't get down off this camel. And you understand that, don't you? In effect, yeah. saying don't search the camel, because I'm sitting on Jim? That's uh, your goal. I'm sorry, say that again. Any of these gods, household gods, gold, <laughs> that's a tremendous amount of money. The text doesn't say that to us it would seem that they're probably made out of more than just a piece of wood, but it could be just a piece of wood or a stone. The Bible is not saying anything to us that this is made out of gold or silver or any, any other precious metal. I mean, that would, be, that would be a good illustration of why, a good uh, explanation or motivation, of why she might have taken it, if it is of value. But the text is silent on that in terms of whether that's true or not. Did someone online have a question Yes, <clears throat>
1: um, I've always read this as the um, reason that she did that was to avoid getting caught. That there wasn't a uh, implied contempt for his form of worship, or it makes her more holy. She just did something that was wrong and was trying to get a and trying to get away with it and using that as a convenient excuse. Is there? What's the support for the kind of uh, second layer of meaning there since the
0: text is silent on it? Well, Russ, think about it in this way. Um, In the conversation that she had with Jacob, that she and Leah had with Jacob, and Hmm. all that they had said, what your God has said, we will do it, we will go, and so on. She has acknowledged and agreed that God has protected and taken care of Jacob and indeed has blessed Jacob. So, Russ, by sitting on these gods during her menstrual cycle, she is also demonstrating the impotence of these gods. They're impotent. They're not powerful. And whether she's personally believing that or not, and I I just don't know, Well, if you personally believe or not, in effect, Russ, that is exactly what she's showing. That's what her actions are doing. In effect, it's it's, that's what I mean. The the the
1: uncleanness demonstrates that, but the motivation is what I don't.
0: Well, see, that's what that's why I was answering to the guy's questions here in the room. Her her motivation to, as far as I can study the text, is unclear. Mm -hmm. But what you can say, to use your metaphor, another layer of meaning. At least God is demonstrating. Through what L- Rachel has done, the impotence. Hmm. You know, I'm sure you, you know, so remember by impotence. You know, yes. Yes. okay, the impotence of Laban's gods. I mean, they have become defiled, and they're not doing anything. A, a menstruating woman is sitting on it, which, no matter who you are in the ancient world, was a horrific offense to your gods. And so, it's just it's demonstrating. So, at the very least, God is demonstrating the impotence. And it's, it's a powerful polemic against this idolatry. Would you agree with that, Rush? I mean, at, at that level, this is a theological statement. Whatever Rachel is intending here, she's clearly lying, she's clearly hiding this. But what is going on here is a very powerful polemic against these polytheistic idols. Correct,
1: Correct. From, a, from a top-down view. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes the the model holds very well from a motivation. Um, you know whether she was against <laughs> the gods, whether she was trying to promote her cause by taking his household god that he believed in to reduce <clears throat> his power. These are all speculations that I've heard. They, that
0: they're, they're, never that's, that's that's correct. It, we we are speculators when we try to figure out. We're speculating when we try to figure out the heart of, of Rachel's motives. God. But from God's perspective, this is a polemic. What is going on here is clearly polemical. The impotence of Laban's gods has just been demonstrated. Exactly.: okay. Yes. So, but Rachel's motivation and her anger may lie in verses 14 to 16. Father has taken our... Oh, yeah. Polemic. I mean, she, she, is not, she, doesn't have, she doesn't have any kind feelings. She feels no, no loss in leaving Laban at all. It's just, we'll have to wait to get to heaven, then we'll ask Rachel. That's 9,780 seconds question I want to ask. Okay? Everybody with me? All right, let's see if we can finish this. Uh, I would love to finish this so that next week we we get into 32. Uh, where are we here? Okay, then 36, verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated. Do you understand what berated means? Berated Laban. Jacob said, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, what you have found of all your household goods. So set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Now there, that, that adds a little more. 14 years plus an additional six, which is probably part of that period when all these animals are breeding and all these are being born. Now, that's an important piece of information we didn't have. It's a total of 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried. I've not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by well I did I not bring to you? I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand, you required it. I the stolen by day or night. There I was. By the day, he consumed me. The cold by night. My sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years, I've been in your house. So he's just summarized. That these were hard years for him. And even some of the losses to wild animals, he didn't tell Abram about it. He absorbed it. I served 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. That's again, what we just commented on. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, verse 42, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, that's a really interesting phrase. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Isaac's his dad. Why does he use that fear? The word fear there is a reverential word. It's a worship word. So Jacob's observed, despite the shortcomings of Isaac, and you remember when we studied him, there a lot. He was a man who feared God. He worshipfully revered God. So you could translate that, you could maybe paraphrase it, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the one who feared God, my dad, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Let's put it this way. My covenant-making, covenant-keeping God was my champion. That's what he's saying. My covenant-keeping, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God's been my champion. He saw my affliction, the labor of my hand, and rebuked you last night. That's why he spoke to you in that dream last night. God's my champion. And you're not going to be able to overcome him, Laban. And Laban answered and said, The daughters are my daughters, and children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine, which is not true. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom I've born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. What has Laban just conceded? I've lost. I am not going to be able to keep you here. You've won, Jacob. <laughs> all this stuff, he serves is all mine. That's not true. It's not his. But he realizes he cannot deceive Jacob's God. So what does he say? Let's make a covenant. I only got about six minutes here. Let me let me try to put this in the context of what you and I would think of today. He, he doesn't want to make a covenant like the Abrahamic covenant. What he wants to do is he wants to make a treaty. He wants to make an agreement. I can't defeat you. But let's leave, friends, let's leave as colleagues. to mutually agree on something. And so, what he does, and now it's, it's kind of strange here, but these are ancient Near Eastern practices of how two previous enemies who were at one another make an agreement that's binding on each one. So, take a stone, this is in, in verse 45. Oh now, he's going he through what happened. So, Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stone, and they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar-Sahadutha, which is utterly meaningless to you and to me, but it's an Aramaic term because the Aramaeans, he's an Aramaean, spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew, spoke Aramaic. And Jacob called it Gali. So they each named this pillar of lots of these stones and Mishpah. He called it Galit, Jacob calls it Galit and calls it Mispah. Now Mispah is a term you will see in the Old Testament. Mispah literally means watch post or like a rook in chess. Mispah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, if you take my wives beside my daughters, although no one with us sees, God is a witness between you and me. So when Jacob... Utters what he utters. Who is the primary witness to this agreement? God is. Because in an ancient agreement between two warring parties, there are witnesses. There are people who are witnessing the agreement you guys just made, these two warring parties. We have lots of those from archaeologists, found lots of those. But Jacob is saying the most important witness to this agreement is God. And Laban, if you break this agreement, you're breaking an agreement that God has witnessed. And Laban said to Jacob, go, see this heap, this pillar, which I've set between you and me, the heap is witness, the pillar is witness. I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Laban is agreeing to this. I agree. Your God is the witness to this, the God of Abraham, the God of Noah. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. He swore by Isaac, the one who feared Yahweh. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his, his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Now, this is a very, very important aspect of what's going on here. That last sentence, it's in, in, in that part of verse 54. They eat a meal. They eat a meal together, which is the final sealing of the agreement. That is what not, I want. I want you to think about this for just a little more deeply. Because as God sets up the covenant arrangement with the children of Israel, And they do their sacrifices to Him. One of the very, it's a lovely thing to study, quite honestly, but it's called the peace offering, where you make an offering, You, as as the community of believers, you make the offering, and then you have a meal at the end of that. It's called the peace meal, the peace offering. And the language, when you go back to that, is God, in effect, is celebrating with you because peace, shalom, means... Everything is right between you and God, and you share that in a fellowship meal. That is what is going on here. This is a, the word shalom isn't used here, but this is like a peace offering. All the hostility is now behind them. They set up the symbols of the agreement, these pillars and so on. Jacob says God is a witness to this. Laban agreed. Okay, I agree. God is a witness to this. And there's a meal that's shared. The implication of language seems to be that they all share in this. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So they agree to this. The animosity between Laban and all of his servants, etc., and Jacob and his family, is now over. It's been settled. Why has it been settled? Because God intervened and was the champion of Jacob, and spoke directly to Laban, and Laban, this must have been very difficult for him, conceded that he was defeated. I cannot be victorious over Jacob. They agree. They sign an agreement. In effect, they sign it, notarized by the local justice of the peace. I just made that up, but it's it's an agreement as legitimate, and both agree, God is a witness to this. Now, the other thing about, and, and you, you, we've talked about this before, the other thing about this is God's really into object lessons, God's really into memorials. And so that memorial would have been those, those heaps. You know, there's a pillar and then heaps of stones around it. And so that would be the marker from both sides to see, this is the sign of this agreement. It's still in effect. Now there's no evidence uh, in the rest of the narrative of Genesis, there's no evidence that Laban ever causes any more difficulty for for Jacob. He honors the agreement. Also the text is fairly clear that Laban, unless things happen that are just not recorded in scripture, Laban will never see his daughters, they're they're really not his direct daughters, his uncle Laban, or, or the grand, he'll never see them again. And so, you know, this this is a finality to this in both Laban's life and in Jacob's life. But Jacob has one more individual with whom he must wrestle. And that's God. And that's what Genesis 32 is all about. Genesis 32 is the finality of God's transformation of Jacob. God has brought Jacob quite, quite far, hasn't he? Jacob has come a long way. He believes his God. He's walking with his God. He obeys his God. His God said, go back to the land now. Now I will be with you. And the testimony he shared with Rachel and Leah, he's, he's tracking with God. But he's still Jacob. Next week, God is going to break Jacob. And this is, the, this is the final turning point in his transformation. And God's going to give him a new name. So all of that. Chapter 32 is a major chapter of the Bible, as well as a major chapter in our character. I, I said to my wife, let me just pray that I can get through these two chapters in one session. She must have and she must have, because we did. The question is, do you understand it? I mean, we, I kept a fairly rapid pace because this is a very hard thing to try to divide into two, two sessions. So it was really good. I hope you followed all this. and you see the superintendent care of God? He was almost out-connived by Leibn one more time, but not this time. God protected him. Okay, I'm going to pray and let you go. Lord, thank you for Jacob. Uh, we learned so much in this character study of one of these patriarchs. You are in the process of transforming him just like you're in the process of transforming all of us. Obviously, the circumstances are so different, but he's learning dependence on you. He's learning that you care for him. He's learning that you are taking care of him. And he's learning that you keep your promises. All of those are important aspects of faith. Next week, we're going to study that enormously important turning point in his life, that final transformational act of God in his life. Uh, I have studied Jacob many, many times in my life, Lord, but he's one of the most important characters of, of an illustration of a trophy of your grace. Nobody would ever have chosen Jacob to be a channel of your grace, to be a channel of blessing, but he was. Despite all of his character flaws, you transformed him into a trophy of your grace. And that's maybe the whole point for our application. Be with these men as we go our separate ways. Take care of them. Watch over them. May they be the champion of your grace to this dark world. May they represent you well in this dark world. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Okay, guys, we'll see you.